Get ready to tune in to stories of average men striving for greatness to become the leaders that are needed in their homes, in their career, and their communities. This is the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. Mark Black, welcome to the show, my man. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. I think we got to know each other uh, through the interwebs, <laughs> social exactly. media, probably exactly. from um, one of my Facebook groups. So what? it's been a year, year and a half, uh, well, maybe longer yeah. than that, probably yeah. right before COVID. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So it's really cool. It's really cool to, to take the next step and kind of getting to know you. I'm looking forward to this little journey of hearing your story. And I um, so... At, the way we start this is just let's rewind a little bit and you start telling us uh, a little bit about yourself. All right. So this is going to, it's going to sound like we're, we're going to be on a long journey here. I promise we won't, but it does start at the beginning. So uh, I was, I was the first born to two young 23 year old parents uh, and was born with a congenital heart defect that was not detected uh, because of the technology available at that time. So everything looked fine until I was born and I turned blue and I had, um, they detected that the, the issue was with the heart and I was uh, medevaced to a children's hospital three hours away and had emergency open heart surgery. And that began a basically two year journey of surgeries and hospital time and, um, culminating in saying, look, Mark's going to have a long road he's never going to live a normal childhood. He's always going to have all these issues. He'll be on medications his whole life. You know, more politely and diplomatically don't get attached mm. um, is kind of what my parents were told. And uh, I was really fortunate that I was able to kind of live a quasi normal life for the first 14 years of my life uh, after that initial uh, hiccup. And then at about 14, I got, sicker again. And then at 24, it kind of culminated. Oh, sorry, Scott, just one sec. Yeah. Yep. And then at 24 years old, um, my condition just got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't cope anymore. Climbing stairs got difficult. Walking up hills got difficult. And I went in to see my doctor. He put me in the hospital immediately. And uh, I ultimately was there for about two weeks where they ran tests and kind of stabilized my condition and then said, you need a new heart and two new lungs and you need them like ASAP. And so in, you know, very short order, my entire life was turned upside down. And, uh, I got, I was given kind of two, what I call less than desirable options. Uh, option one is get a transplant, but sadly that's not a straightforward process. Mm -hmm. Uh, anywhere in the world, even in, even in the best medical uh, situations, because there just aren't enough donors for everybody that needs a transplant. And so, um, and I happened to be five feet tall and a hundred pounds at the time, a little heavier now. And, and so finding a donor for me, excuse me, was going to be particularly difficult because they have to, you know, the organs have to fit properly. And most, or, most, most donors, uh, statistically speaking, are uh, motorcycle riding 30 year old guys, uh, who don't wear helmets. Um, and their lungs weren't going to fit anyway. So they said, look, the, we'll put you on a list if we can, but the odds of finding a donor for you are slim to none. 
So you may want to consider option two. And I always kind of laugh at that because I had already been told that best case scenario without a transplant, I had a year to 18 months to live and I'm 23, 24 years old. Like what other option is there? Right. Uh, but they said, look, option number two is you go home and kind of live whatever time you have left Mm. trying to tick some things off a bucket list instead of waiting around for a a transplant that isn't going to happen. I I made that decision in about 30 seconds. I said, you do whatever you need to do. I'm going to get a transplant. And so uh, we began that process and I was very fortunate that donor was found, took about a year on the list, six months in the hospital as my condition deteriorated. But I was, I was fortunate to get the transplant in uh, September of 2002. So it's coming up on 19 years. Uh, And they told us, doctors said, look, five years survival rate of this surgery is 50%. So if we can buy you five years, that's a win. And uh, like I said, we're at year 19 and counting. So it's been a, a wild, but very, very uh, fortunate ride so far. Yeah, that's incredible. At, at the age of 24, well, first of all, at, at a young age, I mean, you had this from the start, you know, it was a pretty traumatic start to your life. Um, very traumatic start. I'm sure you probably don't remember those first months, but but um, how was it being a kid with, you, you know, th- with this, with this thing, like my heart isn't as strong as everyone else's, uh, you know, how, how was it growing up with that? You know, and it's interesting. It was a lot. I mean, look, we whitewashed uh, stuff in our memory, right? So I'm sure there were moments that were difficult that I kind of forget. Um, but for the most part, it was a lot better than you probably would assume. And I lived what I would consider a very normal childhood. And that was, I credit 95% of that to two parents who made some really smart decisions from the very beginning. Uh, and I don't know if that's because they're both gym teachers and they had that kind of like tough mental toughness kind of attitude or where it comes from, but they just made a conscious decision to raise me as much like a normal kid as they possibly could. And so I, played sports competitively. I did everything a normal kid would do. Um, And I think about it now as a parent, like we have three kids and I'm not sure that I could watch my child knowing that they had a fairly serious heart issue, like sprinting up and down a court and not be worried about what was going to happen. But, you know, doctors kind of gave them what the risks were and and what to look out for and, um, and then said, do what you think is best. And they just made that decision. And, and, they also did not treat me any day. I mean, I have three younger brothers and I was just one of the four boys. I was not given special treatment. I wasn't, you know, um, treated, uh, more delicately or, or any of that stuff. And, and I was held to the same standard and, um, you know, academically and in and, and sports and everything. And I think that had a tremendous benefit throughout my life. And certainly when I got to more serious challenges later on, is because I just kind of learned that like, you've got to figure it out. There are going to be issues and problems and challenges in life. And it's not fair a lot of the time. And that's okay. Uh, You just got to figure out how you're going to deal with it. And so there were moments then moments to this day through, you know, you, you're in a business, you know what it's like Um, where, the for me the gap between oh crap shit it just shit just hit the fan and what am I going to do about it 
is very, very small. There is not a lot of time for why me and it's not fair because I know that it's pointless and, and I've been through worse. And so we just jump right into like, let's fix this problem now. Yeah, that's an amazing outlook. And I want to dig into that definitely more uh, at, you know, what a gift to have parents that just, that, that saw the big picture and didn't live in fear. Like, I, I think that is so incredibly like a major gift. I, I can't even believe it really, honestly, you know, mothers very, very protective, want to protect. I see it all the time. My son plays football. I hate it. I'm, I don't want him to get hurt. And he's totally normally functioning. Just fear is a gripping thing for most moms when it comes to their kids. Did your parents go in through anything to to prepare them for that? Or do you just feel like they would just, their profession, their mindset was just dialed in? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, I think it was largely dialed in. I'm sure that they had moments that they don't talk about with me. Um, <laughs> and I know, and I do know that they had conversations behind closed doors at various points along my lifespan where they were like, is it time to pull them from sports? Is it? Cause I was also like, look, I was, the, I was always the shortest and smallest kid on the team, but I was playing at a competitive level in, in basketball, mm-hmm. if you can imagine, and in soccer. Um, and so what I, what I couldn't do physically, I had to make up for in, in sheer grit, determination, effort. Right. So, you know, if the other guy was jogging down the field, I was sprinting down the field. If the other guy was jogging down the court, I was sprinting down the court to make up the difference. So it, it also wasn't like I was going through the motions on the court. I was laying my life out on the court every single time. And so, yeah, I mean, to watch that again, I'm as a parent now, I don't know that I could do it. I hope I could. Um, but they, Mom always talks about the story of being like in the ICU at the children's hospital when I was a baby. And one of the nurses, an older nurse who had been there for like 30 years, one of those kind of old gritty, I've seen it all kind of people who was just like, do not bubble wrap your kid. Like if you want any piece of advice, there are kids here who will be crippled for the rest of their life emotionally because their parents will try and shelter them because of their health condition. And I get it but that's not going to help them. If you want to help him, treat him like every other kid. And look, lots of parents probably got the same advice, but for some reason, my parents were able to internalize it and apply it. And uh, yeah, like you said, what a gift, because there were a lot of things along the way where looking back now, again, when you're a kid, whatever is normalized is normalized Mm -hmm. for better or worse, right? Um, You hear horror stories about people, the abuse that they suffered, and they think it's just this is what a household looks like. I was fortunate that that wasn't my challenge, but I, but what I, what I did deal with was normalized. Like I thought it was normal that you go see a cardiologist four times a year. And I thought it was normal that you get blood work every month. And I thought it was normal that I remember being like eight at a pool outside somewhere before I really kind of looked around and clued in that, like, not everybody has this zipper down their chest. Like I do like why is Oh, it's because I, that's a scar. Like that's because I had a cut. Like, so it was just, yeah, when you don't know better, sometimes that's a blessing. Right. So, um, they, they were very good at making me feel like my normal was normal. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm just, I'm literally blown away. The nurse having the, the love and the foresight to say something so impactful that most parents in that situation would not have hear, ears to hear. And then the fact that your parents actually had ears to hear, I think if anybody listening to this is a parent, that is such an incredibly powerful message. 
It's like, we're so instinctually designed to coddle and cuddle and bubble wrap our kids, even if they have everything's healthy and everything's normal, but you know, really what does it take to raise a resilient adult, not coddling them? So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, and we can, I don't know how far down this rabbit hole we want to go, but, (laughs) but it's, it's a passion of mine that we look, it's a, it's a fundamental principle of success in business and life that whatever you do, um, whatever is the easiest, shortest, most comfortable route, short-term is almost always the worst thing Mm long-term, um, right. And vice versa, whatever is the hardest path in the now is more than likely the right path for you long-term, right? It's easier to spend the money now, but it's better for you long-term to save it. It's easier to eat the cheeseburger now, but it's better for your health not to. Um, and, and so the same is true in parenting. Like I think, look, I'm, we, I treat my kids very well and we love them and we, and we, you know, and we, and we love on them and we, and we try and make their life um, pleasant, but I'm also not going to, give them everything they want to make them happy now. Cause it solves the problem today. Like they're whining. It gets me out of their, it gets them out of my hair to say, yeah, here's whatever you want. Because I know that that creates a kid who expects to have everything they want at their fingertips. Right. And not only is that going to be create a problem for everybody they deal with in the world, but it's also going to create a problem for them when they get to a point in their life, when they have to work for more than 30 seconds for something that they want. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's all of these little seemingly insignificant decisions that we make every single day that long-term create or, or well, create the results, whether they're good or bad. Hey guys, this is Scott. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, but I did want to interrupt for just a second because I am super passionate about a new tool that I've found and been using for the last month or so. And if you're like me, the thought of writing copy puts me into cold sweats. But we all know that writing blogs, social media posts, web copy, ads, and more are part of life and can make a considerable impact on moving the needle to success in your business or job. We all know how difficult it can be to wrangle ideas, action words, and details, not to mention time constraints. Fear not. I have found a solution that allow, will allow you to easily crank out stunning copy in minutes. It's Jarvis, guys. It's probably hit your social media feed and you think it's too good to be true, but it is not. Jarvis is the latest artificial intelligence technology that will help you create content at lightning speed with little effort on your part or hefty fees for writers. You fill in two easy steps and it'll lay out descriptive paragraphs, both short and long-form articles, bullet lists, social media posts, blog posts, ad copy, SEO copy, Google ad copy. It gets super detailed. There are tons of templates to choose from. It's totally up to you. It's two steps, and it blows me away every time I use it. In fact, it just keeps getting better and better. So if you're like me the thought and thought it was too good to be true, trust me. This product kicks ass. I literally use it every single day for personal and professional use. Just go try it for free and use my link. uh, And it's in the show notes. I'm not going to read it to you because it's crazy. But go to the show notes, click on the link, sign up for your free trial. You will never look back. And this is a great way to support this podcast. Super simple for you, for your business. Send it to your 
boss, send it to your friends. It will revolutionize workflow. The link is in the podcast notes. And if you want to support the brotherhood of fatherhood, this is a great way. I often, I'll take this rabbit rabbit trail just a minute longer and then we'll, we'll circle back. I often look back at the way I've raised my kids. I have a 17 year old and 13 year old. And I'm like, man, I just wish I would have like, let them deal with X, Y, or Z. Right. And my son is 17 and he is in one of the top marching bands in the nation and it's extremely competitive and he's, he's in a leadership position this year. And like, he would come home from these band, these band, all day band things where they're teaching and he's in charge and it's just really super stressful. He's coming home and he's like making all of these mistakes, leadership mistakes. And he's making all of it. And I'm just like hurting. And then I'm like, no, this is freaking incredible. He's learning all of these lessons at 17 that I didn't learn until I was 20, 30, 40 years old. I'm like, wow, what an, an incredible opportunity. I'm just going to sit back and be a spectator. If you ask me for assistance, awesome. But I'm not going to say like, here's the easy route because leadership and growth and business is not easy. Parenting is not easy. And I'm like, what a gift to have this right now. And I wonder, I mean, it just kind of seems like you walked into that gift pretty early on, which is, which is amazing. You had this massive adversity. Like, I mean, you were <laughs> pronounced basically, Hey, life's short. He's going to die very, very early on. Um, at 24, let's, let's go back. So yeah. 24 is the year where it's like, Oh man, this isn't good. Um, how were you, were you in a place where you identified a little bit with kind of your body's structure? Or were you still at this place where you're just, you are who you are? Were you pretty firm in your, in your identity and your, in your direction in life outside of this condition? I was, I th well, I thought I was. Um, so one of the fascinating things about the, that experience is, so just to give you the quick timeline, it was like April of 2001, I come home from university, I'm studying to be a teacher. I think I've got this little hiccup that I've had a hundred of in my lifetime where it's like, okay, you're kind of sick. We put you in the hospital for a week. We bandage you up and pump some drugs into you and send you back on your way. And you're going to keep going for another five years. And instead they're like, you need a new heart yesterday. Um, and like everything stops now. Like uh, I spent that summer waiting to see if I would be put on the transplant list. I wasn't allowed to work because I was not in any condition to work, um, which was the first time ever that that had happened to me. And so I had, first of all, I had way too much time to think yeah. <laughs> or what I felt was too much time in retrospect was probably helpful, but I didn't, I was not used to sitting still. Um, and in a span of like three months over that summer, basically, um, everything that I kind of used to form the identity of who I was, a student who was about to be a teacher, uh, a boyfriend, um, an athlete, all of that was stripped away. Like my girlfriend of three years left. And frankly, I don't blame her. We were 24 and she was looking at her three-year relationship where this guy was going to die on her. Um, you know, I was looking at, at a career change, if not just the end of my life, um, all activity was going to stop. And so you start to go, okay, well, who am I really? If I'm not any of these labels that I put on myself every day, like when those are all taken away, then what does all of this mean? And it took a long time. I mean, I had 10 months on the transplant list and the last six were in hospital. So you have a lot of thinking time. 
Um, and it, it really kind of reshaped just how I looked at what, what life was and who I was in that, in that, in that life and what really mattered and what didn't and all of that kind of stuff. So that when I emerged on the other side, there was, um, I don't want to say a whole new perspective, but certainly some changing in, in where I wanted to put my focus, um, and on how I evaluated my worth as a man, as a human being, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I, I mean, I can't imagine. And, uh, but also uh, many people at 24, 25, 26 haven't really tackled the identity thing yet. They have it wrong and they don't know it. I mean, I'm speaking for personal experience here and, and actually interviewing many, 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 mostly men. And they're like, yeah, I mean, it took me until my forties to really figure out who I was. So again, almost like another gift in a, wrapped in a horrible package. <laughs> yeah. 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 Look, I think, well, I think a lot of our gifts are, are hidden in horrible packages. Uh, and we miss some of them for that reason. Cause we, we try and avoid them because they look hard. Um, one of the things that I pose to people when I, when I speak is what if we have it all wrong? What if, what if life is supposed to be hard and what if our constant evolution quote unquote evolution towards towards easier is the wrong path. In other words, I think that most of the time when we innovate, certainly in technology, but in the rest of life too, it's always about making things quicker, faster, better, quicker, faster, easier. And we think quicker, quicker, faster, easier meets better. And I'm not sure it always does. Look, I mean, I'm glad that I love the convenience of this, but there are also tons of negatives that came with this Absolutely. that we didn't anticipate. Um, and I think, you know, when we make our kids' lives quicker, faster, easier, I'm not sure that they we're always making it better. Because um, I think we lose the character development, the leadership lessons that come with struggle. And I think there's value in that. And so it's a balancing act all the time of like, when do we take advantage of the conveniences and when should we maybe take the harder road because it's ultimately the, the better one. Um, and I certainly don't have all the answers, but I just know that anytime I've grown significantly and anytime I've achieved anything that I'm significantly proud of, it's on the other side of something really difficult. Yeah. So powerful. So good. So good. So you're in the hospital, you get your transplants. That's a serious, <laughs> a serious surgery. What was your course after, after that? I mean, you were, you were on course to be a teacher. Did you change your course, your direction? And, and what, if so, what was that? Yeah. So, um, I, I had planned, yeah, I planned to be a teacher and then, uh, you know, through the transplant process, um, you know, we started to look at the doctor started to explain obviously the risks of the, of the process, the transplant surgery itself. And they were, um, there were many, but I always, you know, people who say, wow, that was, you know, brave or courageous to face that. And I say, well, when the alternative is dead, it doesn't take much, it doesn't take much bravery to face whatever the other option is. Um, but then the, the, the follow-up, even if everything goes well, then it was okay. Well, there's a list a mile long of things that can go wrong. And, and the biggest 
issue is infection rate at risk. So after transplant, you're immune suppressed. They suppress your immune system with drugs uh, on purpose so that you don't reject the new organs. And that's an issue um, forever. So the, or the body, you know, the cells always recognize these organs as foreign bodies. And without that medication, tricking the cells into thinking the organs belong there, they would begin to attack. And so there would be this immune response and the organs start to fail. So that's an issue forever. And so because of that, you're on these medications and those medications, of course, do that job, but they also come with side effects. That's the nature of every drug you take. And so it's just whether the benefits outweigh the side effects. And in this case they do, but the side effects can be bad. So far they've been, they've been tolerable, but um, increased risk of cancer, um, all kinds of digestive issues can happen. Uh, the biggest issue is that you're more susceptible to infection. And so they were they, shortly after the transplant, they said, okay, now as you go out into the world, uh, there are two, I mean, we really would like you to just avoid public places in general. It's funny. I have like, I was prepared for COVID long before <laughs> COVID ever happened. Yeah, like, um, cause it was like avoid crowded places, uh, public transportation, movie theaters. Um, but the biggest, the big two were hospitals and schools. Oh, uh, because in particular kids are germy because they just, they don't wash their hands and they got bored hygiene. It's just, and there's all, you know, hundreds of them in a building. So they, you know, they heard I was going to be a teacher. They're like, yeah, don't like find anything else to do, please. Um, I'm not sure they would have picked public speaking in front of hundreds or thousands of people at a time. Sometimes uh, that, that was any better, but um, so yeah, I, I had to kind of figure out a whole new path and it took 2002, so it took four years to kind of stumble into speaking. And I tried a bunch of other things in between, including some substitute teaching hmm. um, before I kind of fell into speaking by accident and then uh, loved it and, and got some good feedback and began to build that business. But it was certainly never, it was not something I set out to do. It was something that kind of found me. That's yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, let's talk about risk because I think, you know, you, you were raised in a way like, let's not even like, just go live. Like, are you living that way now? Yeah. I mean, I always try and say that, you know, everybody lives balancing risk every day, mostly just subconsciously, right? Most of the time we're not very aware of it, but we're, we're, we're making hundreds of decisions a day that are weighing risk. Should I cross the street now? Or should I wait till the car goes by? And then like, we're doing it all the time. So I like to think (laughs) everybody would have an opinion, uh, that I weigh the risk in a health, what I consider to be a healthy way, which is I'm not reckless, um, but I'm also not going to sit in my basement until I think there is no risk in the world because I know that that's never going to happen. So it's figuring that out. And obviously this last year has presented a whole new set of challenges, especially for an immunocompromised person like myself, uh, especially someone who speaks, who was making a living traveling and spending time in, in rooms with hundreds or thousands of people sometimes. And I had to just kind of, and I'm still, I'm still figuring it out. I had an, uh, an opportunity to speak uh, about a month ago in Alabama mm. and I booked it. And then the next three weeks, the numbers in Alabama went like this uh, in terms of COVID. And again, this, I don't like, I know that this can get, this can get political and, it, and I'm not, I don't want to go there. Um, I had to decide for me because of what I saw 
on the news and in the statistics about what the numbers were doing and what mask wearing was like there. And the fact that even though I've had my vaccinations because of my suppressed immune system, I don't get the immune response to the vaccine that a regular person does. So I knew that I couldn't fully protect myself. And I, I had to go to the client and say, for my own personal safety, I don't think I can do this event live. And they were thankfully super gracious. And we worked out a way to do it virtually and it all worked out. But, oh, cool. um, yeah, I mean, not the same obviously, but, but, but it worked out and, and that was my solution for me. Right. And, and there wouldn't be another speaker who'd be like, I'm, I'm there, no worries. And we'll do it. So you have to figure out how you're going to navigate the world and, and work when we all have to do that all the time. And I think it's, the, the older I get, the more I feel like saying this is the right way and this is the wrong way is just way too oversimplified because there are just too many variables involved to try and place those judgments on how people do things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Hey, the COVID thing, this is, let me speak to that from a non politicized point of view, you have to do what you need to do. And in your situation, immune compromised. I mean, there was some serious side effects and that's the one thing I would say about this is like, stop judging people for how they're deciding to move it, move along in this. That's, that's like 100. I don't care what side of the fence you're on. You have no right to judge other people. A hundred percent. You know, it's, um, it, I have said to, to, to people, um, it's tempting to be in my position. It's tempting to be like, why isn't everybody just going to get vaccinated? And then I have to be like, you know what, again, that's their risk assessment. And my job is to protect me. And yeah, my life is easier if everybody else is protected because then I don't have to worry about it, but that's not my call. So I have to do, I can only control me. And again, that's another thing that I work with people on in resilience is like locus of control, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of our stress and anxiety and inability to be resilient comes from our desire or our effort to try and control the uncontrollable. And so when you can learn to tune out everything that you can't do anything about and focus only on what's going to move the needle for you, your family, your circle, the world gets a lot easier to manage. Yeah. Uh, I love that message. I, I, I screen it from the mountaintops and, and also have to work on it in my own life. I said, if I said I, I was perfect at it, I'd be a fat liar, but, um, same. You, same. Yeah. Yeah. So physical, your physical health is dialed. Um, I mean, you have a major accomplishment. The only man, only person in history with a heart and double lung transplant to finish a marathon. Is that correct? Definitely the only man. I, I, there may have been a woman that did it after me. I, I, it's all Google search, right? So I, I, hesitate, <laughs> to, I hesitate to be like, I, maybe I didn't find this person. Right. But as far as I know, yes. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and it, it, it came about because it was actually, I was in the ICU eight days after the surgery. And I remember being able to feel this strong, rhythmic, steady heartbeat in my chest for the first time in mm -hmm. my life. And I thought, this represents new possibility. Like there are doors open now that were not open before. I wonder if, and I kind of went down that rabbit hole of like, I wonder if this could happen or if that could happen. And, and I landed on marathon because I thought, pre-transplant, I could literally not walk a flight of stairs without getting out of breath. Walking from the car to the door of 
the grocery store, from the parking lot to the front door, I would get winded. And so I thought if I could run a marathon, it means I can do any, like anything I can set my mind to. Like to me, that was the hardest thing I could imagine doing. That's changed. Um, the goalposts move as you, as you make progress. But, um, and so I thought as a mental challenge, as much as a physical one, I wonder if I can do this. And so, I, you know, I set about the, the process of training for that. It took about two and a half years from the day I said, I wonder if I could to crossing the finish line the first time. And then as most distance runners will tell you, once you do one, you're like, okay, now I want to do it again. Yeah. So you, you're addicted to running. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was. Uh, and then, and then we had children. <laughs> I hear you. <ya. laughs> yeah. I had children and, and I went to uh, do a long run one Sunday morning and my wife was holding a baby and a three-year-old was crawling on the floor. And I say, and I'm saying, I'm going to go run for four hours. And then when I'm back, I'm going to be useless the rest of the day. And that didn't seem very fair. So we had to ch- kind of change priorities at a certain point, but yeah, very, very valid point. Very valid point. And incredible that you recognize that. Well, <laughs> I know my wife had to help me recognize some of those things when I'd go out. Yeah. Anyway, whole nother po- podcast. <laughs> um, well, let's transition a little bit because your story is extraordinary. We probably could talk about it for a couple hours and, and I'd love to actually talk about it for a couple hours, but I want to kind of pivot into kind of some of the, the concepts and things that you've learned. You love to teach other people that you feel are very, uh, are, are kind of the groundwork of what makes somebody step into the next level, whether they're a, a business owner, entrepreneur, uh, coach, speaker, whatever it might be. So, you know, what are, some, first of all, let's talk about what you, what you present about. So uh, the, the presentation and the program that hopefully soon to be book um, is called the resilience roadmap and roadmap. And it's a, it's just a, it's a framework that I put together by reverse engineering what I and my family did through the transplant journey. And then, and, and frankly had been doing before that, but just didn't kind of identify. And it's a series of steps that you can take, um, that frankly you already do. You just, again, don't identify it. And if you can do it more proactively, then it's helpful because you can make it, you can speed it up and be more intentional for how to deal with, with life and business, how to deal with, with adversity. And so the first one, um, the first part of the process, well, so I'll go through the steps. So it's acknowledge, accept, adapt, uh, aspire, act, and assess six A's so that I can remember them. And hopefully the people that I share this with have a little easier time too. And so the first one acknowledge is, is very simple and yet not like here's a, one of the great truths I've learned about life is that just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy and certainly doesn't mean that people do it. So the number of times that I will teach something that somebody um, will say, yeah, I've heard that before happens all the time. And then I say, are you doing it? Oh, well, you know, no. Okay. So then we still need to be reminded. Um, Acknowledgement simply means coming face to face with what, with reality. Right. And all too often, myself included, we will consciously or subconsciously avoid facing reality. We'll pretend the problem isn't there. We will not get on the scale because we know we're gaining weight, but we don't want to see it in the number. You know, we will um, know that we're getting in debt and the credit card is racking up, but we won't open the credit card statement because then we pretend it's not there. 
so first you just have to like go, okay, what, what am I dealing with here? Right. And, and, and once we do that, then we can start to solve the problem. And the next step is to accept. And then I give people this really simple framework. I say, do three interlocking circles or three nested circles. Right. And in the very middle is complete control. Right. So in the middle of that circle, everything that exists in there is totally under your influence. And think about the things in your business and your life that you control every day. You know, your effort being, being number one, your mindset being number two and so on. And there's things in the second circle that you influence. So what you do and think every day is going to have an impact on these things, but there are other variables at play. And then the things on the outside of the circle are things you do not control at all. And then with that picture, I say, okay, where are you spending the majority of your mental and emotional time and energy every day? Where, like the things that you're staying up at night thinking about, the things that you're stressed about, the things that you're worried about, where do they fall in that graph? And inevitably we find that we're spending at least a chunk of our time and our energy on things we have no control over at all. We're stressing and worried about stuff that we can't fix. And so the more we're aware of that, the more we can hopefully learn to tune that out. Uh, And all of a sudden we've got more time and more energy to focus on the things that we can actually influence and control. What an idea. And so acceptance is not about playing victim. It's simply about saying, okay, I can't fix that. So I'm going to forget that. And now let's move on to what I can do, which is the next step, which is to adapt. Right. So March of 2020 happens and my speaking calendar, which is 90% of my livelihood disappears in 14 days. Mm -hmm. Like we were away in Florida we came home from March break and literally it was phone calls and emails for the whole week, canceling bookings, right? My literally my anticipated revenue from the year went to six figures to like a few thousand dollars in the span of two weeks. Oh man. Oh crap. <laughs> right? Like what the hell do I do? And what I teach people is that we're always going to have that moment whenever something bad happens And I put bad in quotation marks because it's really about how you interpret events. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to have that that time period of mourning, grief, anger, whatever you want to call that, where you're just like, the question really is just, is that gap going to be two years or two minutes? Right? It's going to be there for everybody. I I still have it. My, My goal is to make it as short as possible. To move from, oh shit, to now what as quickly as I possibly can, because the, all of that time I now know is wasted. Um, it's necessary, but it's wasted. And people sometimes live years there, mm-hmm. right? The oh, people yeah. that are still, that are, people are still sitting around here in, in, in 2021, pissed off about something that happened in 2018 that they're waiting for somebody to fix for them. So once we accept the things we can't fix, then we adapt and start to change the things we can. So I go in from, oh no, to now what in, short order and went, okay, I can't travel. I can't speak in person. What can I do? So here we go, right? I've got like now three different locations in this office that can work as different backgrounds for studios, studio setups. We were talking about mics before the podcast started. We've got cameras now. Um, you know, I basically learned how to be an AV team in the span of, of a couple <laughs> of months. Right. And then work on redesigning my website so that I can market as a virtual presenter and, you know, work on pitching that to clients. Like here's the value that we can still create through 
and it took time and it took iteration and, and I failed a bunch. But now we're a year and a half into this thing. 2021 looks like it'll be the busiest year I've ever had. So I went from the worst year I've ever had to the best year I ever had in 18 months, largely because accept and adapt, right? Figure out what do I do now? How do I fix this? How can I be relevant? All of that stuff. And we do that by doing the last three steps, which is to aspire. What, what do I want? What's my clear, compelling vision for a better future than today? People say, how do you get motivated? Believe that tomorrow's better than today. It's really all it is. If you know that whatever is on the other side of this hard thing is worth it, then you'll, the motivation to get through this is easy. The challenge is when you think it isn't, right? So when it becomes a slog is when you feel like it's never going to get better, right? right? So when you believe that what you're doing is worth doing, because the product on the other end is going to be something you're excited about, you'll find the energy every day. Um, so we have to get clear about what that is. And then we have to act we have to one foot in front of the other, right? How do you, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? How do you run a marathon one step at a time? Um, and then finally we assess, we look and we say, okay, what is this working? Right. It, did the adaptations I, I tried work and the answer will always be yes and no. Right. <laughs> right? Like I still believe you know, I, I don't know how many books I've read about entrepreneurship, countless. Uh, and ultimately, it still comes down to throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. Some stuff is going to work. Some stuff isn't. Just because it worked for somebody else doesn't mean it'll work for you and vice versa. So you adapt and some of your adaptations, some of your gut choices will be right and some will be wrong. And as long as you're taking time periodically to check, then you'll be fine because you can reiterate and adapt again and try something new. The problem comes when people don't bother to assess and they just go, oh, okay, well, I, I, I changed, I fixed it and it's still not working and they're ignoring it. And then we go back to acknowledge again and it's this, this circular pattern. So that's the, the long-winded answer to that question. Well, I, love, I love that. It sounds like an incredible program um, presentation and all of the above. One thing that really sticks out to me is that you had to fold into your own uh, your, your own framework that you develop and teach and, and the proofs in the pudding, you, you fold it over and now you're having a your better year than ever. Right. And you go from your worst year ever to your best year ever. And we've seen this over and over and over again with businesses. Uh, you know, uh, my business was born in COVID and, and then I've, I saw people fold, but I saw people like repivot. And it's incredible. The stories I'm hearing right now of businesses. I just had the best month I've ever had in my business career that's ever. Awesome. Yeah. That's and that's, awesome. that's a very, very strong story. So even, and some people haven't even really gotten to that point yet, but that, that, that resilience and that tenacity and that, that like learning from it, adjusting. I love your, I love your A's, you know, adapting and, 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 acting and getting everything in, in action is, is making a massive dis difference. So I know, I know the power of this. Um, so do you feel uh, this is gonna, this is gonna be a funny question, but do you feel like you're better at this content now after go going through the COVID shutdowns? hundred percent. Yeah. It's, um, it's 
first of all, boosted my confidence that this stuff works, right? Because I thought, I know it works because I've lived it, but I lived it in a very specific context of like my health journey. And I was like, well, so I think this probably works in business too. And there were different kind of examples I could point to. But now I've like, I've lived the full journey of the process in, in 10 months and seen what, seen what happens. And there's no question in my mind that if you do this stuff, it works. Um, and again, a lot of people are going to do it accidentally anyway, but if you can, if you can proactively do it, uh, and in that order, then I think you just shorten the, you shorten the learning curve and you get there faster. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I like every time I've done something and I've felt very passionate about, it's usually from oh, something that I did an experience I had, and it did not go how it should. And it took me a really long time and a lot of pain, a lot of tears, a lot of blood, a lot of sweat to fix. And then I'm super passionate about like screaming it from the mountaintops to other people I see going down that path. Right. And I think there's just a lot of power and, um, motivation is not the right word. Maybe, uh, maybe purpose kind of wrapped up mm-hmm. in, in that, um, who are some of the like really in, influential people or, or, um, you know, books, authors in, in your life in the last few years and who have really helped you directly or indirectly get to where you're at now. Oof. Wow. Um, geez, there's so many. Uh, so in terms of, in terms of books, um, can't hurt me is a great one. David Goggins. Um, he, he, I mean, I read that as I read that whole book, I was like, man, I could have written this book, except yeah, I don't have quite the sadistic level of, uh, <laughs> of enjoyment of physical pain that I think he does. Um, but all the same concepts, all the same ideas about, about, you know, the power of grit and determination are there. Um, and, and the idea that like everything worthwhile is on the other side of discomfort. I just think, I just believe that wholeheartedly. And I think so many people, are shortchanging themselves. And if they're parents, they're shortchanging their kids by giving themselves the comfortable, easy solution in the short term. Um, a, another, another book that's had a massive impact on my business. Um, and it does have an application to COVID because I think if you are financially sound in your business, then you can survive a lot better. And I think there are a lot of businesses out there that are buying in that have at least previous to this, bought into this idea of like, if you just over leverage yourself, you can make even more and you can do it faster. And it's like, yeah, but there are risks there. A lot of people don't like to talk about. Um, and COVID taught us that I think, I hope. Um, so a book called profit first has been a game changer for me and my business, just in terms of like knowing where your money is and having reserves and knowing that you have, like the comfort level that comes from knowing you've got six months of salary in the bank so that when shit hits the fan, you can weather it is, is like, it helps you sleep at night so much better. Um, so those are two books that just pop into mind, but there are, there are a bunch more. And then in terms of mentors, I mean, I, I try and take something away from everybody I talk to, everybody I meet. Um, so it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint one, but, um, a friend of mine, Dan Martell, an incredible entrepreneur. He's a, a, a now coaches um, SaaS founders, so software as a service founders. Um, he he has started first. He 
So he began by uh, failing the first time his business folded when he was very young, but then he built and sold three tech companies, um, Silicon Valley, like did very, very well financially. And then um, basically in COVID a little bit before, but mostly through COVID created a coaching business um, simply by teaching what he's done really, really well, which is build and sell software companies. Uh, And he, I I don't want to say overnight because it's certainly not overnight, but in short order, because he was very focused and because he knew who his clients were, um, has built this incredibly successful coaching practice um, by putting himself out there as someone who can help a very specific group of people do a very specific thing. And really what I've watched and admired and, and trying to emulate is an incredible consistency in the few things he decided to do. So I'm going to, he's going to create content. Okay. So every single Monday religiously for, I don't know how many, it's been a couple of years now, the YouTube videos have been there, right? The Facebook lives have been there. The posts have been there. Um, he's doing the webinars. He's doing the things just, again, I think a lot of business success is not about like learning the new thing that you, that secret that you don't know yet. It's not there. Like it's not that next webinar you have to sign up for that you haven't signed up for because you haven't learned that one trick. It's applying the 25 things you already know you should do that you're not doing. And if you go and apply three of those consistently over time, you're going to get results. That's, that's what most of us are not doing well enough. Yeah. Yeah. A little, a little weirded out (laughs) because uh, the last interview I did, same answers, but some of the same answers, profit first and Dan Martell. Ah, cool. Yeah. Really cool. And, and, um, makes me think I need to interview him. So anyway, uh, <laughs> well, shoot me an email if you do, cause he lives down the street. So like, Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I'm just like, wow. Okay. Uh, definitely someone I need to tune into and probably everybody does. If, if not, if you're not in the SaaS business, like what, who cares? You're watching somebody who's built themselves. Yeah. You know. There's still lots to learn there. Yeah. 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 Uh, before I ask you last question, is there anything we haven't talked about or you haven't been able to share that you're really passionate about and want to get out, get out there? Uh, listen, I'll take an opportunity to plug it because I love it. And, and it's a nice segue because Dan was part of it and, uh, and he's part of it. Um, I do a conference. I've been doing a conference every year for the last five years called Level Up. And the whole idea is to take your business and relationships and health and fitness to the next level. and. Um, like I said, we started it. I started it um, five years five years ago on a bet. <laughs> I was in I was in Dan's uh, sunroom at his house, and we were talking about it was like Christmas time. We were talking about our plans for the next year, and I offhandedly say, "Well, I, you know, I've always kind of wanted to do my own event. Like I spend all my time speaking at other people's events and and kind of being at their." Um, at their whim to speak about what they want me to speak about and, you know, speak on the day and time they want me to speak. And it'd be cool to, to be able to have my own event. He was like, okay, great. So when are you going to do that? Of course. Well, I, I don't know. Like uh, sometime, no, no, no. Like when are you going to do it? And like an idiot, I, I was like, well, I don't know. It's January. It's, it's December, uh, February 6th, just randomly. Uh, now I know better. And I know one, you don't commit to Dan and then not do it. Uh, so I had to do it. And two, I would have given myself six months instead of six weeks, but uh, I threw together an evening, like a four hour event, uh, put a hundred dollar price tag on a ticket and found some friends who would speak for free and hoped that people would come and we sold out. And so 
if I learned anything from business, it's if you do something and it works, you build on it. So at that event, I sold tickets for the next one and then said, okay, we'll figure out how to do that later. Uh, and here we are five years later, last year, last year, COVID happens. It's like, okay, now what are you going to do? You're going to not do it. No, we'll have to do a virtual one. So we did a full two days, like six hours each day, virtual conference. Again, one of the neat things when you, when you make a decision to say, uh, when problems happen, I'm going to innovate and find a new solution is often the solution is better than what you had before. And so it was more success. It was more financially successful last year than it's ever been because there were basically no overhead. And even though we charged less for tickets, we could have more people and we weren't limited by room size and I could market to the world instead of kind of the area around my city. Anyway. So again, so since we learned that lesson last year, this year, it's like, okay, well, let's combine the best best of both worlds. We'll have a in-person day. We'll have a virtual day. People can attend virtually to the in-person day as well. So virtually you can do both days if you want. Um, and Dan is coming. So that was, that was the tie in that made me think of that. So, um, that's incredible. Yeah. It's going to be a, a fantastic, uh, two day event, eight speakers. Um, can be really, really cool. And as an entrepreneur, you, you, uh, will learn a ton. That's, in, that's cool. I, I had no idea. Um, so I, I love hearing that. Okay. So the level up conference now, the, the final question, if you go back in time, if you could go back in time hmm. and share a piece of advice to yourself, what would that be? Hmm. <laughs> There's so many. I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was so stupid. Um, and, and I know that, you know, it's 50. I'll look back at my 40 year old self and say the same thing. Um, get coaching. I think it's probably the one I would, I would say I, I waited so long out of a desire to save money was the justification I gave myself, but it was also out of ego and thinking I could just like, why can't I do this on my own? Um, and when I got coaching for business, coaching for speaking, um, coaching for all kinds of different, I can't tell you the number of programs I bought now coaching for my physical health. Um, every time I've done it, my results got better faster. So, um, yeah, don't wait around. Like you can shorten the learning curve. And I, I want to say every single time I have made my money back and then some quicker than I thought I would. I agree. hundred percent. I agree. And for so long, I'm like, I can't afford it. And now it's, I can't afford not to, there's just, just no way you can not afford to not do that. And I see people dissing, life coaching and coaching. And, and I'm like, they just don't understand. Like they, they don't want to grow or they don't understand the value or they got burned, which does. Or they got, that's right. Or they got burned or they're, or they're the kind of person that thinks that by buying the program or hiring the coach, they've achieved something already. And look, it's a good step in the right direction, but the mistake a lot of people make is they hire the coach or they buy the program and then they don't do the program or they don't yeah. listen to the coach. <laughs> and then they say, it doesn't work. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, I've done that too, right? I've got the online program that I bought that I didn't watch the videos. It's like, guess what? It doesn't help you if you don't do the content. So. Right. right. Yeah. Well, Mark Black, it's been incredible hearing your story and your advice is uh, very firm, very, very amazing, very foundational in success. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, 
Be sure to share it with your friends, your family, and follow us on social media. If you are a father, make sure you join our Facebook group, The Brotherhood of Fatherhood. Hit the subscribe button and tune in next time for more podcasts from The Brotherhood of Fatherhood.